morning. Okay, everybody grab your seat. It's good to be back. Everybody wants to fellowship this morning. My assistant failed to get everything up here. Okay, I've got a book giveaway after we pray. So if you're here on the first day back after three weeks off, then or two weeks off, but it's been three weeks, you get a book giveaway, maybe. So let's open in prayer this morning. Lord, thank you for our time to gather and study. We want to study your word this morning, see what it has to teach us about you, Lord. A worthy subject, of course, God. And we want to know more about you. We want to understand how you're different than us, how you've given us some of these attributes in ourselves, but you're in a different league altogether. So we pray, Lord, that we might understand you better so we can worship you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I have, and still in shrink wrap, so it's in pristine condition, the preeminent Christ by Paul Washer, God's beautiful and unchanging gospel. So if you don't have this, you can answer the question and you might get it. We have the attributes of God we've been going through. So which of them speaks of God not being divided into parts? Simplicity. Okay, you got it. Preeminent Christ. So we have a few more weeks here to finish the theology proper. That's the doctrine of God. And then new classes will start on the 28th. You should have gotten an email about that. There's, right now, there's, it looks like there's going to be three classes. So check out the bulletin today about those. We will continue in this class with theology, but you're welcome to jump into another class as well. That's fine. Systematic theology is a big topic, so I divide it up into four semesters. And you can jump in and out each semester as you feel like it or as there are other classes offered. All right, so here's the map of the attributes of God. An attribute is a perfection or some people say virtue of God. It's saying something about God's nature. Who is God? What is God? What kind of being? Some of these touch on that. He's, he's spiritual. We looked at that last week. Now, some of these are incommunicable, meaning there's no way whatsoever that we share or have anything related or similar to these attributes that are incommunicable. God is Say, aseity is independent. God is independent. We are never independent. We never have been independent fully from all other creation. We never will be because we're always dependent on God. God is immutable. He does not change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his nature. He doesn't change anything of who he is or his decree that has already been set, set in stone, you might say. We change all the time. We're changing right now. We have cells that are dying, cells that are being replacing the, the dying ones. We change our mind sometimes too quickly on things. God is infinite when it comes to time. He's also infinite when it comes to space. So that's eternity is time and immensity or omnipresence is space. So he's infinite. He's everywhere and time has no effect on him and he's not bound by time. He's simple. That's the question I just asked. He's, he can't be divided into parts. You can't even think of these attributes as something we can divide up. We can study them because we see them manifested in different times and places in Scripture and even today to us. But it's not as if we can slice God up into pizza pieces or pie pieces. Uh, he's omniscient. He knows all things. In no way are we like that. He is all-powerful. Omnipotence. He's all-powerful. We're not like that at all. And he's perfect in all these attributes. So then we moved to the communicable last time. And since I've missed two classes with a guest speaker and being sick... We're going to have to cover all of these today, hopefully. We did do spirituality last time. And spirituality is just speaking that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, and that makes him invisible. 
You cannot see God. By the way, communicable means that in some way we have these attributes, but God has them in his perfection and we have them in our humanness. So he has made us like him in these ways. So we looked last time at, at spirituality. Just to remind you of the definition, it comes from John 4.24, God is spirit, little s. Speaking of what he is, he is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is his spirituality and invisibility. He has no material part, no material nature. He is immaterial. He's not made of, of something. Now there is the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which speaks of the Son of God taking on humanity, taking on flesh. We'll get to that when we cover Christology next semester. But as far as the deity goes, there is no material essence. He is in M, M material. All right, so we looked at that. We're picking up today on the rest of them. So we've got to go quick, which means there's not going to be a ton of detail on this, but that's okay. Most of these we're somewhat familiar with because we, we share in the sense of uh, having these. We have these attributes ourselves. So now it's just thinking of them in the capacity of God, which is a grand thing. It's not easy to do, but it's easier, I think, to do than think of what is aseity. All we can say is it's what it's not, right? God's not dependent. What is simplicity? We can see what Scripture says and try to study it and organize our sayings on it, but we have no experience ourselves with simplicity because we are body, we are soul. And even within our body, we have different parts to our body. What is wisdom? God's wisdom is His perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully. When it comes down to it, that's what wisdom is in the Bible. It's taking what you know and living wisely, living skillfully, so that, this is God here, so that He will accomplish all His good pleasure to glorify Himself. So God takes all that He knows and accomplishes His good pleasure. That is His wisdom. And this is in place even before the creation because it's an attribute of God. He didn't get added to with wisdom when he created. So this is God doing all things to accomplish his good pleasure, to glorify himself. Burkhoff says it's that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends. Again, within the Trinity, this can be done even before creation. So what does the Bible say? A lot, of course, about God's wisdom. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three. all the depth of the riches of, and wisdom and knowledge of God. A lot of times you see these attributes kind of piled together in verses. And here you have three of them. The, the riches is more of a description of all of his attributes. Wisdom is what we're talking about here. And then knowledge. That's his omniscience. He knows all things. And through knowing all things, of course, he can apply that knowledge with wisdom. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways. Often the wisdom of God is used in the Bible to remind us that we don't have God's wisdom that our wisdom is like that. And the wisdom of the world is completely opposite from the wisdom of God. And the Christian has the wisdom of God in a sense, but we're still stumbling back into the wisdom of the world sometimes. Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God. There's no other God that is wise. There's no other God, but even those people who say there are other gods, they're not a wise God like our God. 
Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. So Paul's closing out Romans with this statement about God. Job has a lot to say. Job has a lot to say about God's wisdom. Job 12, 13, with him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and discernment. God has all the counsel. He doesn't ask for your opinion. He doesn't ask for my opinion. He's not asking for help. But when we make big decisions in life, it's foolish to make those without asking for advice. Too many people do that, even Christians, right? But God doesn't need our advice. We need His advice. We need other Christians' advice. God does not need anybody's advice. Proverbs 3.19, Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. In His, His creation that He is making at the beginning of the Bible, you read about that, and it's by wisdom, Proverbs says, that He did all of that. By discernment, His he established the heavens. 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom. So there's two types of wisdom. There's the wisdom of God and there's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is describing sinful wisdom, a wisdom that seeks itself, a wisdom that seeks to further sin and Satan's plans. But God's wisdom is different. And the, the world did not come to know God because God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the philosophers can't sit there and reason to the point of salvation. You have to have God come to you to show you his wisdom. You cannot discover God's wisdom unless he brings it to you. Now he's revealed it in the word, but he still has to give you the Holy Spirit, which is what that chapter is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to Job 28. This is the key chapter to Job. A lot of people don't understand Job. A lot of people don't understand a lot of the Bible. And one of the problems that people have, and even good Bible-believing Christians like ourselves, is that we take other doctrines of the Bible and try to insert them into passages or books even, and make that book about whatever we think. So in the New Testament, you know, uh, Paul talks about sin in his letters and in Romans. And so there you go. Job must be about Job's sin. It must be about Job sinning. And at the end, he, he kind of gets woken up by God. And he gets, he gets that mindset changed. Well, the problem is his friends tell him the whole book that it's about sin in his life, right? And it kind of destroys the book if you think this is about Job's sin. Or maybe it's about suffering. Well, that's a little closer to the point. But in the end, you kind of get some of the answer. You also get it right in the middle here. So you don't even have to wait till the end. Job 28 is all about the wisdom of God. So what is Job about? It's about God's wisdom, his sovereignty over our suffering. He's not abandoned Job. He's not abandoned Ruth in the book of Ruth, or Naomi, sorry, in the book of Ruth, whenever she's lost all of her family. God is wise. God is sovereign over everything. And that's what Job doesn't realize. So we pick up in the middle of the chapter here, Job 28, 12, Where can wisdom be found? That's the big question of Job. Job doesn't have wisdom. His friends certainly don't have wisdom on this subject. And so where can it be found? Job says, where is the place of understanding? Where can I go to get more good wisdom? That's what mankind has always wanted since the early days, since the fall. They want to get back to the wisdom that they once had in the garden from God. A man does not know its worth, the worth of wisdom. And it is not found in the land of the living right there tells you, you're not going to find wisdom on this earth. You're not going to find wisdom from mankind. 
And that's where people usually search, right? Let's go discover all the religions of the world. Let's go look at all the religions, and then we'll get some wisdom from each one and kind of put our life together. The deep says, it's not in me. So the deepest parts of the earth say, it's, it's, there's no wisdom there. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in place of it. You, you can't really buy true godly wisdom, nor can silver be weighed at, as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, the best gold in the world at the time, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot meet its worth, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. So these are the most expensive things in the world. And even today, some of these are very expensive. The acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot meet its worth, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? If you can't find it anywhere on the earth, even in the deepest, darkest mines and places you, you, you mine out these gems, if you can't find it buying it from other people, where does it come from? Where is it? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all the living. Mankind cannot discover this on his own. Concealed from the birds of the sky. Can't go down all the way. You can't go up all the way. Abaddon and death. With our ears, we'd say we have heard a report of it. So the deepest, darkest pits where Abaddon and death are. Say we, we've heard something, but it's not here. It's not, it's not in the pits. God understands its way and he knows its place. So there's where it can be found. That's the answer right here. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he set weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it, wisdom, and recounted it. This is back to the idea that God founded, he created the earth according to his wisdom. And he established it and also searched it out. So he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. If you want wisdom, you don't go searching for it in, in gems and jewels and property and people and money. You get it from God. Because God's the only one who knows true wisdom. His wisdom. His wisdom that was displayed at creation. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, what does God do? He shows up and he says, Job, you know nothing. Let me tell you about my wisdom. And where does he go? Creation. Were you there when I created the stars? Were you there when I created these awesome beasts of the world? So the book of Job is about God's wisdom and God's sovereignty over suffering. All right, I could preach all day on that topic going on here. Ecclesiastes is about that as well, but from a little different perspective. Truth and faithfulness. Really, these are the same because if God is true, then he will keep his promises that he makes. And that is his faithfulness. So they're pretty much the same thing. Uh, biblical doctrine says that truth is the perfect correspondence of God's nature with what God should be, with the real reliability of his words and deeds, and with the accuracy of his knowledge, thoughts, and words. So God never does anything that's not true. He never speaks of anything that's not true. Everything corresponds with, normally we define truth as correspondence with reality, or at least traditionally that's how it was defined. Now everybody comes up with their own definitions of truth or changes it. But God is the most perfect being. God creates what we know to be reality. So God is the, the definition of truth. Perfect correspondence of God's nature with what God should be, the reliability of his words and deeds. So these are his actions and his nature and his knowledge. Burkhoff says it in a different way, so we like to 
at least give you a couple of definitions here with these slides. Truth is that perfection of his being by virtue of which he fully answers to the idea of the Godhead. is perfectly reliable in his revelation and sees things as they really are. We never truly see things as they really are. Do you think about that? Even if you're the smartest person you've ever known, you still don't know all that there is to know, and you still don't perceive everything in the right way. There are still things hidden from us. When people tell us things, we, we sometimes believe them, and later it turns out that wasn't true. God, though, he knows all things, and he is the definition of truth. Romans 3, 4, may it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar. When people try to change the gospel, they're actually calling God a liar. And Paul says, look, God is the one who's true, and every man is a liar when compared to God. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. He's the only true God. He's the only wise God. There are no other gods that are wise. He's the only true God. There are no other gods that are true. Even the ancient pagans knew this. They could not trust their gods because their gods were sometimes lying to them. And so they would play tricks. Supposedly they would play tricks on them. And that's where a lot of mythology comes from. And Jesus Christ here also, Jesus Christ is God whom you have sent. Uh, John 17, 7, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's a key verse when it comes to bibliology, the, the doctrine of the Bible. Have you ever thought, why do people, why do Christians, professing Christians, not want to study the Bible or be in churches that teach and preach the Bible? That, that, once I understood this verse and how it applies to our life and our sanctification, it just blows my mind when you come across Christians who say, well, you know, y'all study the Bible too much. Y'all preach the Bible. It's, it's like line by line, verse by verse, you know. I mean, I know it can be done in a boring way, but when it just comes to the fake stuff that's out there in a lot of churches and the truth of the word. There's no comparison. And Jesus is saying, you can't even be sanctified. You can't be sanctified unless the truth of God's word is in you, right? That is the sanctifying mechanism, the Holy Spirit and his word. Anyway, the, the word is truth, and that's the means by which God sanctifies his people. Jeremiah 10, 11, and 12, thus you shall say to them, the gods, so God as the only true God is contrasted in scripture with these false gods. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. So these other gods are not true. They don't exist in reality. They're, they're just demons tricking people into worshiping them. And so they're not true they will perish. They will be gone. But God, the only wise and true God, is the one who created all things. Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie. God's word is true. Everything he says is true. He does not lie. That he should, he, he's not a man that he should repent. As he said, and will he not do it? So this is his faithfulness. Has he spoken? And will he not establish it? God says he's going to do something, he will. Now, Exodus 34, 6 is a verse that's going to come up a lot today because you can see this list of attributes in this verse. This is a revealing verse of Scripture. This is Moses wanting to experience God's glory so that he can be reassured of God being with him. This is Moses saying, are you going to be with us, God, as we leave Mount Sinai and travel with us into Canaan? 
Because there are some really bad folks there who want to kill us when we show up. Are you going to be with us? So it says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God. So this is God speaking of himself. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. How many attributes we have there? Can you count them? Five plus his name. So you could, you, could add, you could say six. Usually the names are separate and not counted as an attribute. So compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so we're talking about truth. This verse, though, is going to come up a lot. Remember I said if you want to study three books that cover a lot of attributes, Exodus, Psalms. Do you remember the third one? Isaiah. Exodus, Psalms, and Isaiah. Not to, mean, not to say there's lots of other books. Of course there are that speak of God's attributes. But Exodus says so much about who God is as he's revealing himself to Israel and taking them through the wilderness, making all these promises to them. Psalms, of course, are worship songs about who God is and what he's done. And then Isaiah is just a long book that covers a lot about what God is doing. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. So God is faithful. We can trust him. He's, he's, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, as we come to him, he's our father, he's our God. He will be faithful. He's not going to save you and then two weeks from now say, you know what, I don't want to hear from you today. I don't want to hear about your confessions. I can't believe you let me down again. That's not God. He made a promise. He will keep his promise. By the way, this is to believers First John is speaking to believers. This is not a necessarily an evangelistic passage. Other verses are better for that. Second Corinthians 1.18, But as God is faithful, so that's just a clear statement that he is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. And so what, what Paul's saying there is, this is the word of God that's coming out, and God's word is true and faithful, and God doesn't change his mind. You, you can trust his word. And that's all we're saying in, in the preaching is God's word. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful, who will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. It's very reassuring as we go through our daily struggles in life as Christians. God is, is faithful. He's going to strengthen us. He said he would strengthen us. He said he would guard us. And when we doubt that, we're, we're doubting not just God's actions, but God's nature. God is faithful. He will do what he says. He is true. Goodness. Now we're talking about goodness. What is Goodness. God is, this is goodness, God is the perfect sum, source, and standard, this is a standard for himself and his creatures, of that which is wholesome, conducive to well-being, virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. So when we speak of goodness, we kind of know what it means, but have you ever stopped to try to define what goodness is? This is about the best we can do here, according to the scripture. It's the idea of wholesome, well-being, at peace, well-being, virtuous, having good virtues, beneficial, and, and beautiful is also. We don't have time to really go into all the verses that speak of God's beauty, but beautiful in the truest sense of the word is part of goodness. Wayne Grudem says there's no higher standard of goodness than God's own character and his approval of whatever is consistent with that character. Burkhoff, the perfection of God, which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. Remember when the, the guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, and what does Jesus say? Right? Why do you call me good? Now, he's challenging him to, to, to decide whether Jesus is truly God or not. But Jesus is doing that by bringing forth this attribute of God and saying, God is the one who is good. It's kind of a way of saying, are you calling me God or not? But 
Jesus tells us that God is good. Okay, so that should say good up there, not truth. We're talking about his goodness. And he said, this is again Exodus 33, 19. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So this is right before the 34, chapter 34 verse where he's passing before Moses. He's going to do it. And he says, what's going to pass before you is my goodness. Well, I thought it was God's glory. And I thought it was his loving kindness and his grace and all these other attributes. Well, it's God. And in that sense of God's glory passing by Moses, the goodness, of course, of God will also be experienced. All my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. So it's his name, it's his goodness, then his grace. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So we have multiple attributes again in this verse. We have compassion, which is mercy. We have grace, which we'll come into those two in a moment. We also have his goodness. And then a mention again of his name. Psalm 27, 13, I, will have, I would have despaired, the psalmist says, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. There, there's hope for the future. God is going to give us the riches of his bountiful goodness. And the psalmist finds hope in that. Otherwise, the sin in this world can often drag us down and make us think there is no hope. But in God, there is. Still should say goodness at the top. You can tell I was cranking out these slides and didn't change the title on these. Psalm 106.1. Praise Yah. That's short for Yahweh in the Hebrew. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good. For his loving kindness endures forever. We see this repeated in the Psalms because Psalms are worship songs to God for the nation of Israel. And they're singing of God's attributes. He's good. One of the ways we know that and we see that is his loving kindness endures forever. Psalm 105, for Yahweh is good. He's not part good. He's not good like we think of people being good. He is good. That's his nature. You can define God by these attributes. His goodness is one of them. His loving kindness endures forever. His faithfulness, generation unto generation. So we have truth, faithfulness there. We have his loving kindness, which is another way of saying his grace. And we have another attribute of goodness. Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says, You are good and you do good. Remember, God's attributes are not about what he does. We see his attributes often in what he does. And here's an example of the two things put side by side. He doesn't start by saying you do good. He starts by saying you are good. That's your nature. God is goodness. And because that's your nature, you, you do good to your people. Teach me your statutes. Wow, there's a whole sermon right there, right? How do we want, how, how, do, how does God do good? By teaching us what he wants us to do and what he wants us to believe, which kind of goes back to sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And how can you understand what is good and how you should live as a Christian if you don't have the Bible and you don't have God's statutes or somebody at least teaching you those things? Okay, love. God's perfect love is his determination to give of himself, give of himself to himself and to others, and his affection for himself and his people. So this comes back to what we've looked at before and I've, I've mentioned in sermons, is that there's this idea in Christianity that God had to create us to love somebody. Well, what that's saying is that he didn't really have the attribute of love before he created. And so he had to create people, which now challenges his independence, right? 
Is God really independent if he needed something? No, he's not if he needs something. So that, that's just kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling that people often say, you know, God loves you so much. He created you so he would have a relationship. Without a relationship, you can't love. Well, what's, this definition helps, right? God's perfect love is his determination to give of himself to himself. How do you do that? Well, we can't really do that without being selfish. God can because he's perfect and he's good and he's holy and he's righteous. And we have the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll hopefully get to next week, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. who have this eternal relationship in the Godhead, all being God. So God can express love within himself. He doesn't need others, but once he creates, now he expresses that love to others. And it's his affection for himself and his people. So it's not just the action. Love is an action in the Bible, but it's also with affection. We often think just of affection today as love, right? Love is an affection. That's it. But then when, we, when it comes down to it, we realize what love is, right? Because if you just tell your, your spouse you love them but never did anything nice for them, what kind of love is that? If you say, I love you, God, but you don't live for the Lord and don't care about his word or his commands, what kind of love is that? It's not really love. So while it's being shoved down our throat from the culture, that love is just about feelings and affections, warm, fuzzy feelings and Disney kind of love, listen to your heart. Love is an action, and that action has affection behind it, of course, but it's not just affection, right? Jesus did not say, I'm thinking about maybe loving you. I love you, but I'm not going to go die on the cross for you, but I love you. No. How is his love expressed in the Bible? That he gave himself for us, right? I think that's a couple of verses coming up here. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, how is, how is this love measured in the church in 1 John? By loving the brethren, by loving one another. And how is that expressed? Not just through words, but also actions. 1 John 4, 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. Well, how did he love us? Did he just say, I love you? No, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a pretty big act, right? That's a pretty big thing that God did that shows his love. It's a demonstration of his love. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So I know I'm harping on this, but uh, somebody says, well, I'm a Christian because I love God, but their life doesn't at all look like a Christian is supposed to look in their life. They don't care about God. They don't care about worship. They don't care about the Bible. They're not living out what they say to be true. So there's a disconnect. Either they're someone who's backslidden, and they need help and biblical counseling and to be in a good church. Or they're not a Christian. Because love acts. Love has an action to it. And it's not just a, a word. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. See, he, he did something that shows his love. His love is accompanied, or the, you can say the action comes forth from his attribute of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Giving of your son is, is a loving thing when it comes to God here. Romans 5.28, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. He demonstrates, he shows that. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were God's enemies and he sent his son to die for us. That's love. Right? That's love. That's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that God has. He's doing something with that attribute of love. A.W. Pink talks about our culture today. He says, There are many today who talk about the love of God who are total strangers to the God of love. The divine love is commonly regarded as a species of amiable weakness, a sort of good-natured indulgence. 
is reduced to a mere sickly sentiment, patterned after human emotion. There's some big churches, some not too far from here, that really focus on this idea of sentiment and feelings and just being a nice person. And that's all Christianity. And, and a lot of the messages that you hear from that church make a lot of people happy because it's just about being a good person, being a nice person. That's love. That's not what we're seeing in the Bible. Love is actually doing something that goes in accordance with that affection. If you have an affection for Christ, that's going to show in your life. If you have an affection for the Lord and His Word, that's going to show up in your life. We're not talking about perfection, of course, but general direction. Grace. Perfectly bestowing favor on those who cannot merit it because they have forsaken it and are under the sentence of divine condemnation. So you often hear grace is unmerited favor. Anybody heard that? That's not wrong. It's just not enough. We need more. We need more than that. It's not just unmerited favor, but it's the fact that the person has forsaken it and is sentenced to divine condemnation. So it's not just that that the person is kind of at zero and they need a little positive on their account. They're at negative infinity running from God. Right? This is the criminal who's on the life. He's got a life sentence or death row. He's on death row. Let's just say that. He's on death row. And he not only gets the sentence commuted when he has God's grace, but he gets all the riches and the blessings of the judge's possessions who once would have judged him. So we have to remember it's the person who deserves the opposite. They deserve the opposite, but they're given this favor and it's not earned. It's not merited. This is also not mercy. We'll talk about mercy in a minute. A lot of Christians get mercy confused with grace. This is not just God showing pity on poor sinners. That is true. He does that. This has to do with merit. It has to do with no merit. That's what I should have said. It has to do with the fact that you cannot merit it, but it's unmerited favor. And we are getting the opposite if we don't receive God's grace. We're getting eternal condemnation. So that's what Burkhoff is talking about, the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. So if you forfeit this goodness, this love of God, and this grace of God, then you're going to be under the sentence of condemnation, which is everybody before they're saved. And when you're saved, you get God's saving grace. Exodus 33, 19. We're back to that verse, aren't we? And Exodus 34, 6. This is going to come up a lot, especially 34, 6. I think it's nine or ten times in the Old Testament all the way through the prophets. Almost word for word, what God says of himself in Exodus 34, 6 comes up over and over. And then in the New Testament, but not quite the same quote. Exodus 33, 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Where's that in the New Testament? I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9. Romans 9, I think it's coming up in a minute. Paul uses this to say God will choose whom he chooses. And that's what God is saying here to Israel. I chose you. I'll be with you. I'm the God of grace, the God of compassion, and I will choose whom I will be gracious to. Exodus 34, 6 again. Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, 8. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Again, that is looking back to Exodus 34, 6. In fact, Jonah throws a fit because he knows, and everybody in Israel knows this is who God is. So Jonah throws a fit because God actually did according to who he is, according to his nature. He acted on 
he, he expressed his grace towards Nineveh. And so Jonah says to Yahweh, Oh, Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. I knew this would happen, Jonah says. This is why I ran to Tarshish away from you, God, because I knew you would send me here. I knew I would have to preach this. I knew you would forgive them when they repented. I knew you would be gracious because that's who you are. So Jonah thought he could, you know, change God's mind. God still ends up getting him there. I love preaching those four chapters on Jonah because Jonah just throws a fit. He's being a baby here. There's no sign of his repentance in the book, but if he writes the book later, which I think he did, he's kind of outing himself and showing that he finally understood He's still a true prophet, too. He just was a rebellious prophet for a bit. New Testament, Ephesians 1, 6-8. The praise of the glory of His grace. We've got glory in here. We've got His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So in Christ, He gives us His grace. And then we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. So go home today and just think about what is the glory of His grace and what is the riches of His grace? And you can't get to the end of that. You can't get to the bottom of that. The riches. We're going to talk today in the sermon about the riches. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable. We can't discover the depths of God's riches. He has so much of it. John 1.16, for all of his fullness, we have all received. And grace upon grace. So when Christ comes and you believe in him, you've received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Mercy, very similar to grace, but not exactly the same. And we have to separate these because the Bible separates these. God's mercy describes them as perfectly having deep compassion for creatures, that's us, such that he demonstrates benevolent goodness towards those in a pitiable or miserable condition. That's the key to mercy or compassion, even though they do not deserve it. So the mercy has to do with somebody who is lacking something. They're in pain. They're suffering. And you give them compassion. You, you give them mercy. God does that for us in salvation. So you can speak of God saving sinners as merciful. You can also speak of it as gracious. These are two attributes of God, and he's expressing those through salvation. But grace has to do with the favor God bestows on somebody who deserves the opposite, which is eternal punishment. Mercy has to do with the compassion he gives to those who are in a pitiable or miserable condition. Beaky and Smalley, the word is related, this word for, for compassion in the Old Testament especially, related to a mother's womb and expresses the compassion of a mother and by extension a father for a child. So a, a woman has this compassion for her child because the child was in her womb. She has compassion. She has a, a merciful love for that child. And that gets carried over into the New Testament as well. But you'll see a lot of this in the Old Testament. God picturing himself in, in the prophets as a mother, nursing a child, taking care of a child, raising a child, finding Israel in her blood, you know, just came out of the womb, and, and God is picking this baby up, pulling her, you know, out of Egypt and raising her as his own. And then he goes on to say, you know, Israel turns from him. Mercy. Well, we saw it in Exodus 34, 6, didn't we? Compassionate. Compassion and mercy are the same thing. So some translations might say mercy. Most say compassionate. That just sounds 
more elevated in language, but it's the same word here, mercy and compassion. Romans 9, 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So same idea here. The, the key is God will choose who he's going to express his mercy towards, and that's in election. Psalm 103, 13, just as the father has compassion on his children, so, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. The ones who really fear God, rightfully fear God, are his people. And he has compassion on them. Nehemiah, you, so Nehemiah is praying to God. He says, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. You didn't leave Israel in the wilderness. He's recounting the history of his nation. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way. No, the pillar of fire by night to light them on their way in which they were to go. God had compassion on Israel. Yeah, he had already saved them out of Egypt, but now they're in the wilderness. How are they going to get through the wilderness? You've got millions of people. Not much water there. There's not much grazing land for their livestock. And they have to go up against these other tribes who are attacking them along the way. God did not leave them. He had compassion. So you're going to see this often in the sense of, a, like I said, a parent having compassion on a child. I love this quote. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Sometimes we think we can, we can out-sin God's grace and God's mercy. And Richard Sibbs, this Puritan, he says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's not a challenge for us to sin as much as we can and see if God can out-mercy our sin. It's a reminder that when we are, we are repentant, when we are broken over our sin, that Christ has more mercy than we have sinned. It's a comfort to us that he has this kind of compassion and mercy. Long-suffering. How many times does long-suffering, the word, come up in your Bible? I did a search in my LSB. How many times do you think it came up, Shane? Long-suffering, the actual English word. Zero. Zero. In the ESV, zero. Why? Why, Frank? Why is long-suffering not in my Bible today? But here it is as an attribute. Is this book wrong? What? Yeah, it's, I think it's in the King James. If you, I didn't do a search in the King James, but it's an older word. But you, the, the thing about it is we understand what it is, right? You suffer for a long time with somebody. That's long-suffering, right? I mean, they, they change these words, and I understand we don't use that word in our everyday language, but they start to say, well, we can't figure this out. We're not smart enough, so we're going to just put in different words for it. It has to do with God's patience. He's, he's, uh, the Hebrew would often say long in the nose. You know, when you get upset, your nose kind of gets red, and you're really, you know, puffed up with anger. God is slow to anger. God is long in the nose. He's got plenty of nose that it's not going to upset his nose, is how they pictured it. And so he's long-suffering. Here's biblical doctrine. He's being perfectly placid. I had to look this up, of course, because we don't use placid all the time. That means not easily upset. He's calm. Placid is calm. And I I kind of understood that, but I wanted to get the right definition for it. He's placid in himself and towards sinners in spite of their continual disobedience and disregard for his warnings. God does not lose his temper, but rather acts calmly with proper affection according to his eternal sovereign plan. We lose our temper. We flip-flop on something in 10 seconds. I mean, I've seen people right in front of me flip-flop on something. I've changed my mind, you know. My family says, we're going to do this, Dad, sure. And then the next... Five minutes later, no, we're not doing that. What, what are you talking about, Dad? You just said we were. God doesn't do that. He doesn't get upset all of a sudden and just can't take you anymore. Which means when God does show his anger and wrath, man, that has, he's gone a long time, hasn't he? In fact, how many 
thousands of years, not billions, has the earth existed? How many thousands of years has God put up with sin? And he talks about that in the Bible, right? He talks about the Amorites and the cup of the cup of wrath is not yet full, he says to Abraham. But when they come back into the land and defeat the Canaanites in Joshua, the cup of wrath is done. The Amorites are done. He's going to wipe them out. And it's the same thing with the world. Right? God is long-suffering, but it doesn't mean he will never display his holy anger, his wrath. This is particularly talking about towards sinners, but also within himself, not having to do with anger towards himself, but he's just not He's not upset. He's not tense. God is not down or anxious or any of that. He is calm. He is placid. Speaking smallly, long-suffering implies God's desire to seek peace. So God's at peace, and he is also expressing that attribute through seeking peace and forgiveness with those that he has chosen to save, rather than retaliate quickly or to reserve his wrath until the right time. If God wasn't long-suffering, we would never be saved, because the moment we sin, done right? Zapped out of existence. Romans 2, Paul makes this one of his arguments to the Jews. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Long-suffering has to do with this idea that God is kind. He, he's, he's forbear. He's put off the, the punishments for our sin, and he's patient. So even the unbeliever has this sense of that God is still giving you breath, unbeliever, he has been patient that you can still live and hear the gospel. Why won't you believe is the idea that Paul's getting at. Right? This is supposed to lead you to repentance. You're supposed to think, wow, I don't even deserve to breathe. I'm, a, I'm an enemy of God. And yet he has been patient. 1 Timothy 1.16, now Paul looks at his own life. He says, yet for this reason I was shown mercy. We just looked at that attribute. So that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Paul says, look, I used to chase down Christians and kill them, and I enjoyed it, and I thought I was really awesome at it, and I was serving God, and I was so holy, and I was patting myself on the back, and everybody else was patting me on the back. But it turns out I was the worst of worst sinners. And God has been patient. In fact, I'm, I'm the number one example for how much patient God has. Right? Paul says, I'm, I'm the example that Jesus might demonstrate all his patience. That tells you where Paul thought of himself and where we should think of ourselves. Before we come to Christ, we were the wretched of wretched. First Peter 3.20, he's talking here about these. Right before this is the spirits who disobeyed. I think in Genesis 6 is what Peter's pointing out. But he says the spirits who were once disobedient. Now the rest of the verse talks about when they were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. How long did God put up? with these people who were against him. Genesis 6, you have all of this sin and you have demonic influence upon the offspring trying to corrupt the, the line so that the Messiah wouldn't come. Satan is trying to cause problems there. God is patient and he waited. You know, Noah didn't build the ark in a week or a day, right? It took a long time. God was patient during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, he waited and waited. Not the sense where evangelicals say today, you know, God is just waiting for you. God is just there. He's on his knees. He's just crying for you. It's not that sense. It's that God is the judge, and he's already pronounced the condemnation on mankind. But he's giving time for people to turn to him and repent. 
2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is really our modern world right here. Right? There is no God. We've been around for thousands of years. Each day we'll keep on going. The sun comes up every day. Life goes on. People are born. People die. And Peter says, wake up. Stop listening to these false teachers. God's going to punish them. And he'll punish you if you follow their teachings. Because he's not slow. Some people think he's slow. But really, remember, God's outside of time. So a thousand years, you know, is like one moment to God and vice versa. He's outside of time. But he's waiting for all to come to repentance. Particularly here, the church who professes to be Christian, and yet they're listening to false teachers. And it's a warning. God's judgment's going to start with the church. And he's going to go through the churches first and find out who's truly saved. And he'll know, of course, but also their actions in following false teachers will show the truth. All right, holiness. I know we're going quick, but if you have questions, come see me afterwards. We'll see if we can get all of these done. This is a big one. I can do a whole hour on this. God is perfectly distinct above everything outside himself and is absolutely morally separate from sin. Now, we typically think of holiness as just the second part. And, and the second part is what we're called to be. So we, we have, it's, it's communicable in that sense. We're not the first part in any sense. So this is kind of one of those attributes that, depending on what you're talking about, you can be, you can be communicable or incommunicable. It's really, most of the time holiness is mentioned, it's this idea of morally separate. So that's where God says, be holy as I'm holy. Be separate from the world and from sin. But at root, the word means separation. And when we think about that, God is separate in a sense that we cannot attain to. He, is, he has majestic holiness. That God is inherently great and resists all compromises of his character Therefore, is transcendently distinct from all his creatures in infinite majesty. It just means he's wholly other. That's how the old theologians and R.C. Sproul uses that phrase. He's wholly other. He's completely separate from us. God is completely separate. Not in space and time, but in his nature. Here's Bavink. The word holy is used, first of all, with reference to an array of persons and things that have been set apart for the general use and placed in a special relation to God and his service. So the things in the temple were set apart. If you had a pitcher that was used in the temple or a fork, that's the only purpose it can ever be used for once it's set apart. It cannot be taken to your house and used as common everyday dinnerware. These are separated for God's holy use. And so he teaches Israel how holy he is, how all these things they have to do, right? In the worship and in the tabernacle and in the sacrifices. This is not just some everyday deity of the ancient Near East. This is a holy other. This is a separate being, totally. He is majestic in his holiness. Exodus again. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Was that ground holy? Did, did the priest, did the Catholic priest go throw some holy water down in front of Moses? No. Why is it holy? Because God is there, and he is completely other. He is completely separate. I need to show you respect that, Moses, by removing your sandals, which are a picture of mankind walking on this earth and all the sin that goes along with that. 
Exodus 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? That's where the, the wording for majestic holiness comes from, this verse. Majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders. There's no other gods like you. In fact, what is Exodus about? Well, redeeming Israel from Egypt, but also judging Egypt and its gods. All the different gods. Each plague is showing that the gods of Egypt are not even real. And they are like, the, the gods of the pagans are like man. Because that's what they are. They're just images that people have put together. Okay, let's take a man and mix him with an animal. And this is a god. But God is not like that at all. He's wholly other. So if you haven't read it, I mean, what are you guys waiting on? Get the Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's a little book. It's one of the first books I read when I became Reformed. He, Sproul says, Holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread. See, this is the fear that ancient people had. Of any God, really, but especially of the one true God. He is so different from us. How can we ever bridge that gap? That's why the, the Messiah is needed, the mediator is needed. He's so different. He, he's transcendent. He's in another, not technically dimension, but we can think of it that way as it's used, the word is used. He's in another existence than we are. Once you've read The Holiness of God, you can upgrade to John Frame's The Doctrine of God. It's a big book. Frame says, Holiness is His Majesty, for the Holy God is like a great king, whom we dare not treat like other persons. Indeed, God's holiness impels us to worship in His presence. But I, I'm serious about Holiness of God. We've got those in the bookstore. It's phenomenal. It's a little book. It's R.C. Sproul. I mean, it, it was the thing that put R.C. Sproul on the map, was his Holiness of God series, which eventually turned into a book. Okay, here's the idea of holiness we often think of, ethical holiness. So there's actually being set apart, holy other, and then there's living it out or practicing that. And so God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So majestic holiness is more about, we can think of it positionally. If you're trying to just make an image in your mind here, that God is, is completely separate. But ethical, that relates to how a person lives or practices their life. And that has to do with relationship to sin. So holiness, separated from sin, devoted to seeking his own honor. Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Also applied to the church in 1 Peter 1.16. So old covenant, new covenant, you're called to be holy people before the Lord. Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification. What is sanctification? It's pursuing holiness. In fact, the word in the Bible is holiness. It's a verb for holiness. We don't have a verb like that in English, though. So we had to borrow the Latin, sanctus. And so we come up with saints and sanctification. But it's really just holy. Saints are holy ones. And sanctification is whatever the verb for holy would be. Who can make up a verb for that? Holy eyes. That sounds like two words, though. Anyway, you won't see the Lord if you're not being sanctified, if you're not living out holiness through the means by which, of course, God has given us their disciplines, spiritual disciplines we should practice to grow in our holiness. But we also have to do that. God is doing that through us, but we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we're out of time. So I didn't get through all the rest, but we're close. We've got a few more left. And I think next week we're going to start with the Trinity. So, if your mind's been blown by the attributes of God, wait till we get to the Trinity. Uh, a lot of heresies, though. People, Christians don't realize it. They come up with a lot of heresies and not understanding the Trinity 
or at least the boundaries of the Trinity. We at least need to know the boundaries there so we don't go too far off when we're trying to define it to other people or on your application for church membership. Okay, so some people are laughing and some are not. Okay, yeah, that is one of the things we ask in church membership application is, uh, who is Jesus Christ? And we haven't really come up with anybody who's written down a completely heretical statement, but you can just tell by looking at all the answers that the Christians and church as a whole has not been taught well on the Trinity. So that's next week. Then we have one more week on the doctrine of God. And then classes change up. So make sure you register for the class you're going to attend. We're trying to make sure we have enough room in these different classrooms and such. And so if you haven't done that, please look at the email or the link in the bulletin and register. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time to study this morning. It seems like we could just go on and on about theology proper and and studying it and looking at verses. And it's just a small sampling that we looked at this morning. Help this, Lord, to be a, a seed that's planted in our minds and in our hearts, a seedbed, a seminary of, of sorts that we can continue to grow in our knowledge of you. And water that, Lord, help us to grow in that and that it will produce fruit in our lives. We pray that you would do this for your glory. Amen.